Chapter 26 Although it was a feverishly hot night, I could just about believe things were looking up. My limbs ached, and I'd taken to often rubbing the outside of my right arm again. But the pain, as well as everything else, my memory loss, my incomprehension, coupled with the fear of knowing so little, seemed to pose less of a threat the more I got to know Jamie. I sat near the fire reflecting on the turn of events. The situation had become more complicated, but we were making progress. Jamie and I had struck a tacit agreement to work together. Nothing was broached, and yet the feeling that we could help each other had gradually formed. I encouraged him to get some sleep. I didn't like to press him any more on why his father had been taken away or where he thought his mother and sister were. In a few hours it would be dawn. As I saw it, we would have an early breakfast and decide then which way to walk and what provisions to take with us. I rekindled the fire and wrapped myself in a blanket. Jamie's pistol was in my lap. I picked it up and held it to my nose, trying to get the smell to become a memory rather than just a fleeting impression of one. I wasn't confident that I would know how to use it. Handling it, lining my eye with the barrel and the sight, gave me no familiar sensation. When I'd awoken on the other side of the mountain, it was clear from the fair condition of my suit that I hadn't been anywhere near Jamie's camp. I had no good reason to assume that the gun he'd found was mine, or that it had been taken from me and deliberately left for Jamie to find, so far away from my starting position. Who would do such a thing, I wondered. Not for the first time, I had the sensation someone must be observing me, playing a game with me. Who's there, I said, in a quite normal tone of voice. Jamie didn't stir. I looked into the blackened mass of the forest, then at the stars overhead. There was no reply. Finally, I placed the gun by my side. It was getting hot again. Before long, I was loosing the blanket around me, rolling up the shirt sleeve of my right arm, convinced now that I would find a needle mark there. There were flecks and specks, but they could have been anything. I knelt close to the fire and inspected the area from my shoulder down to my elbow. It was painful each time I poked, and also mildly repugnant that I should be falling prey to some kind of conspiracy theory, watching myself succumb to it. This is a dangerous game to play, I muttered, openly hostile by then. I looked at the black shape of the gun picked out by the glow of the fire. You should know that I am armed and prepared to defend myself, I whispered, speaking so quietly not even Jamie could have heard. I decided to rummage, just to change the mood, to get away from Jamie's notions and his language of conspiracy. In one of the food boxes I found a sealed bag of ground coffee beans. The first thing I did was open it and put it to my nose. A burst of bitter, treacly smells gave me the most evocative jolt. This was a long-lost pleasure rippling through the darkness. It was a kind of music I could whisk out of the air. I was seconds from recognizing everything in that complex fragrance. I put the kettle into the fire. I banged it down with some force, sending embers into the night. 
I was beginning to hate this handicap that liked to confound me with glimpses and part-resolved memories. I would have been glad to disown my past, clinging to me like a stench. Why did I always think of jet trails? I was put in mind of them again, staring at the conflagration of stars across the clearing. The Milky Way had become another kind of jet trail. I'm on some beach in the early part of the evening. The surf is rolling harmlessly, and further off, the warning cries of a gull and some grit in my eyes begins to irritate me. Combined with these isolated recollections, I recalled a sense of shock and distress I didn't understand. I must have looked up to see the trail of water vapor running pink across the sky, and the jet itself, no bigger than a pinhead, catching the glint of the setting sun. Even as I sat in the woods, far away from any beach, I couldn't bear to think of that jet flying off without me. Water steamed and spewed from the spout and sizzled over the fire. It brought me to my senses. I poured some boiling water into a mug half full with coffee and stirred with a stick. I couldn't find any filters or any other way of preparing the coffee, so I used a dishcloth to filter it all into a second mug. There was plenty of sugar. I heaped a few tablespoons in and took my first hot gulp. I was still upset, but the rush of sweet coffee soon came to me like a miracle remedy. A branch crackled in the fire. As I crouched close to the flames, my metabolism racing and my mind catching up, a face came to me. This was a lifetime ago. I'm looking over my shoulder, strolling through the woods on a wide path. I know exactly where we are. I can feel the gravel give under my shoes. She's taking her time. She has a much slower gait than mine. Her head tilts as she meets my gaze. I wait for her to catch up, her yellow cotton skirt swishing across her knees. She says nothing, but seems to be posing a question. I can't think what, but I know her name. It's right there. <laughs> I had to get to my feet. I had to stand, because I felt so imminently close to recovering everything, all the years I'd lost, and I didn't want to be sitting when that happened. I waited a few seconds before I realized there could be no quick fix, only the disappointment I had known all along that my memory was relentlessly tricky and offered nothing but scraps to make me desperate for more. Despite this, each new distortion remained in the background, accumulating, changing my outlook in subtle ways. Later on, I heard Jamie cough and mumble a few words. As I listened, he began to snore. I went to his tent and looked in. It was the most positive thing I could do, indulge in the comfort of watching a child sleep, once again in the grip of strong emotions. I didn't know why. I knelt and stroked Jamie's hair, glad at how wispy it felt. I'd endured some difficult tests and was aware for the first time of a tinge of regret that our adventure would soon be over and that as likely as not, our friendship wouldn't outlive it. I would be seen by doctors. My memory would return and I would have to get on with my life. I was expectant of that much, although not exactly glad of it at that moment. I was in the dark still, but there were glimmers and images for me to follow now. It was a life that felt too short, a shadow of something unknown that might yet be recognized. 
I knew that more details would eventually filter back, filling in the wide gaps. Perversely, this upset me, mainly because of the freedom I'd found at being nobody, living with nothing, and the sense that, when it did happen, when I did fully recover my history, I'd be a slave to the man I was. Worse though, much worse than I could have suspected, Jamie and I would be under attack by sunrise, and I was about to learn that it's your enemy who defines you. Chapter 27 The first bullet hit the kettle. I'd relit the fire and was waiting for the water to boil. A wisp of smoke escaped from the trees. The bullet passed through the lid and the kettle toppled sideways. I was only just aware of this, sitting near the fire, eyes half closed, still in a kind of sleepy fug. I heard the shot being fired long after the bullet had struck. I was already scrambling away when the second bullet burned through the air. I felt it whiz over my head, bedding itself in the ground somewhere with a thump. An instant later I heard the second crack of the weapon. The sound seemed far away. I was already learning to hate the decaying echo. In my panic I'd managed to fumble into what I hoped would be cover by the trees. I'd left the stupid pistol behind on the ground near the fire. There was no way of getting back to it without exposing myself. I wondered if I would even be able to do anything useful with it anyway. The truth is, I was so horrified, I probably just wanted to give up and die. I would like to have prevented Jamie from getting hurt. It was the one thought that distracted me. Because I was able to, I crept to the back of his tent and lifted the hem to whisper some kind of reassurance, I suppose. But Jamie was gone. His tent was empty. Another volley from far off ripped into the side of the tent next to his. Now I shouted for him. I squirmed behind the next tent, pulling a peg out so I could lift the back up and glance in. There was no trace of him. I could only hope Jamie had stepped out to relieve himself while I was dozing by the fire. The birds weren't singing. I noticed this because one suddenly did, chirping up from some way off to no reply. It was so still I couldn't even hear the leaves rustling. I had no way of knowing how many assailants might be ranged against me, but decided it was probably one. One lone sniper. At least in my frantic imagination this seemed to even things up. Had there been more than one, I wouldn't have stood a chance, pinned down in all but full view. I glanced over my shoulder. I supposed my assailant must be a sniper, and that this sniper might be working his way round the clearing to get a better shot at me. I guessed if I made it deeper into the woods I might have a fighting chance. The thought of Jamie tugged at my conscience. I didn't dare look into the third tent. It was too dangerous. There was nothing I could do for him now. I prepared to make my escape. I briefly thought of grabbing something to eat from inside the second tent, but I didn't get the impression this sniper would give me the opportunity. Shoving myself into a crouch, taking leave of reality, I stayed low and hobbled away as quickly as I could. It was a timeless moment, like moving through a long, dark tunnel with nothing but a surge of fear to compel me and no idea where I would be when I came out. A bullet hit the ground less than a meter ahead of me. As I dodged the settling dust of the impact, another crack from somewhere far off made my bowels loosen. 
Soon I would feel disgusted with myself on top of it all. I threw myself into a bush with plenty of thorny branches. Warm fluid leaked down my legs as I lay panting and snagged in the bush. I commanded my frightened brain to think logically. I closed down each spasm of thought, trying to impose a wall of ice on my emotions. He's not shooting anymore, I told myself. I'm not hit anywhere. It was more like a series of questions. I checked my torso, my limbs and hands. There were a number of new pains and bruises, as well as a new rip in my shirt, oozing a thin line of blood. My arm throbbed wildly. For all that, I felt elated. It was good I decided to be able to record what my senses were telling me. I could taste blood in my mouth. Otherwise, I was fine. My stink was like a betrayal. I loathed myself for that already. It occurred to me that danger and desperation are symptoms of being alive the body is already well attuned to. My panic had reached critical levels, but as I started to struggle out of the bush, there was some part of me that was still calm, still able to evaluate. My efforts attracted another two shots from a distance. He was picking off spots not too wide of the mark. One round passed very close, a sinister whistling buzz, then the long crack of the rifle's discharge. My right jacket sleeve tore away as I hit the ground and belly crawled a few meters more into the forest. There was so much to do and think about, different considerations vying for my attention. I was unable to cope with them all. The problem of Jamie missing was a major concern, but no longer the most urgent thought I had. I would like to have warned him in case he was nearby, but shouting or making any kind of signal would have alerted the enemy, even though, of course, the enemy knew exactly where I was. For a few unguarded seconds, I imagined Jamie's broken body lying in a ditch or in the tent I hadn't checked. By immediately stamping out this notion, I could go on thinking as if it wasn't a possibility. I decided Jamie must have heard the gunfire and was running away by now, maybe even getting help to rescue me. I kept crawling, slithering over roots, under bushes, obsessively aware of the shit drying on my legs. When I'd gone as far as I could, I curled up on the ground. I was behind a fallen tree with a cluttered view back to the clearing. The sniper was going to have to wait a long time now to get the opportunity to kill me. I'd come out of it unscathed so far, perhaps better able to keep myself alive. Buoyed by this, I silently cursed whoever it was who thought they could get the better of me. From time to time I peeked out and listened for movements. A wasp hovered over my head. I waved it away. It kept coming back. I went to take a shoe off so I could whack it, and only then noticed that I'd lost both shoes. All I had was the one sock on my left foot, more holes than sock, and managed to avoid the obvious conclusion that without adequate footwear, I must be doomed. The minutes crept by. A sense of normality returned to the forest. I had to yawn once or twice. Sudden movements every so often, mostly birds darting between the trees, jinked me back into a heightened state of alarm. This must have gone on for hours. I think I was prepared for anything, apart from what actually happened. Chapter 28 
The killer out there was obviously waiting, forcing me to wait as well. I was so exhausted I actually dozed off. It must have been a psychological reaction. I really think I wanted to die. Even as I closed my eyes for the sense of relief it gave me, I was aware that my enemy could creep up at any moment and shoot me in the back of the head. The prospect of being shot at point-blank range was something I thought about in a strangely hopeful way. It was bound to be quick and painless, I told myself. All I had to do was drift into a dreamless sleep. But I couldn't let that happen. Every so often I caught myself snapping to attention again, long before I could even begin to snore. In that fitful state I had no control over the drift of my imagination. My back teeth were grinding fiercely all the while, the dumb birds were singing, and my stink was the worst distraction imaginable. In this strange predicament, waiting for a quick death, I pictured myself in the clearing where the tents were. Jamie would be there, waiting for me with a stopwatch. He would be shaking his head. I would feel so glad to see him again, forgetting this was just another desperate, half-dreamt fantasy I was having, waiting to die. I could hear his voice. You're late, I imagined him saying. I've been waiting for you. I thought it might have been around the middle of the day when I grappled with these thoughts. I couldn't admit it to myself, but there was every possibility that the poor boy had already perished in the assault earlier. Then I heard an owl, not too far away. I could hear it hoot and looked around, surprised. It sounded wrong, hooting in the day. I made myself stir, forcing my eyelids apart. The first shock was that it was dark. It was so dark I might have been in purgatory, considering I was in so much pain, as well as stiff and famished, and the stink hadn't abated. The events of the day started to flood back. To begin with, I didn't recall that I was in the midst of some kind of armed attack. As I lifted my head, I could only relive the horror the general experience had caused in me, and only then did the situation become clear. The whole episode flashed up in my mind again along with my profound anxiety for Jamie, and I groaned out loud. How could this be happening? Once again I realized I was in a situation beyond my understanding, flowing into a new unknown every time I opened my eyes. There was no basis for the experience, nothing to compare it with. It was so strange that I could even imagine Jamie having something to do with it. It occurred to me now that he might have found himself a rifle somewhere and was trying to scare the shit out of me, and what a splendid job he'd done. Lying in that hot, dense dark for a time, thinking about all the help the boy had given me, I returned to the more plausible notion that it couldn't be Jamie trying to kill me. I decided it must be someone else, someone in possession of more facts than I knew about. I returned to the possibility that I'd been tracked from the moment I'd woken up two days before. For some reason it was required that I should fight for my life. I was lucky to have come across Jamie at all. Without his intervention I wouldn't have lasted as long as I did. As to what this was all about, what terrible thing I could have done to provoke such hostility, I was clueless. At that moment, rotting in the woods, I knew as little about myself as I did about whoever had done this to me. It took a long time to get to my feet. 
Each new agony was a hindrance. I had to wait patiently until the pain subsided before moving again. Finally, more or less upright, I stepped forward. A puppet to start with, handled by someone who didn't know how to make puppets walk. My legs and arms were like swinging planks. With a pounding heart, I crept away. For a while, I felt a ridiculous need to avenge Jamie's death. I tried to rouse myself with this. It was the only cause I could think of fighting for. My own felt so utterly lost. I wanted to call out that I was furious and wouldn't be toyed with when I felt something blunt nudge into my lower back. Behind me, a male voice ordered me to put my hands on my head. He spoke in English, but he had an accent I didn't recognize. 